U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. My name is Dale, and I am joined by my XO, Stephen. Hey there. So today we're going to start on the War of 1812. We're going to start with the background of the entire conflict, and then we will finish up with the battles. Let's get underway. So, the War of 1812, which is often referred to as the Second War of Independence, was a conflict of 32 months between the U.S. and Great Britain with its colonies and its Indian allies in North America. The outcome of this war resolved many issues which remained from the American War of Independence, but, of course, no boundary changes. The United States declared war in 1812 for a lot of different reasons. Some of them included trade restrictions brought about by Britain's continued war with France, the impressment of American merchant sailors into their navy, uh, the British support of the American Indian tribes against American expansion, and the overall outrage over insults to national honor after humiliations on the high seas, and possible American interest in annexing British North American territory or modern-day Canada, which had been denied to them in the settlement ending the American Revolutionary War. Huh. I, I didn't realize that uh, the War of 1812 was uh, kind of fought over America being able to expand westwards. Not westwards, northwards. Oh, okay. Yeah, Canada's above us. Well, I, when you were talking about um, American Indians and expanding... And I am pretty sure that while the 13 colonies, you know, those have fairly established borders, but everything east of the Mississippi was American territory, in quotations, at that time. Yeah. Like, settlers could go there and not worry about starting international incidents. Well, anything really going west, you weren't going to run into too many international incidents, mainly because it was just the American indigenous people west uh south we would have spain in florida and then north you would have great britain but you also had american indigenous peoples north south and west and then there were even some still in the east hmm. all right the war was fought in three main theaters at sea warships and privateers of each Sides attacked each other's merchant ships, standard SOP, and the British blockaded the Atlantic coast of the U.S. and mounted large-scale raids in the later stages of the war. Uh, secondly, both land and naval battles were fought on the American and Canadian frontier, which ran along the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence River, and the northern end of Lake Champlain. Lastly, the American South and Gulf Coast also saw major land battles in which the American forces defeated Britain's Indian allies and a British invasion force at New Orleans. At the end of the war, both sides signed the Treaty of Ghent, and all parties returned occupied land to its pre-war owner. So, in the end, after almost three years of war, the only thing that changed was nothing. We agreed, okay, we had round two, we worked out the kinks in this new relationship, we both lost folks, you go back to your side of the Atlantic, I'll go back to mine, and you can keep Canada. Well, there's going to be other things that change, but at this point in time, what we're seeing, the biggest change is the body count. <laughs> that's, that's fair. So, because of the... Napoleonic Wars until 1814, the British's Navy and Army forces were over there. A little occupied. A little occupied with, with Napoleon. So they had to use a defensive strategy at first to repel multiple American invasions of the provinces of Upper and Lower Canada. They gained control over Lake Erie in 1813, seizing ports of Western Ontario and ended the prospect of an Indian confederacy and an independent Indian state in the Midwest under British sponsorship. Hmm. In September, a British force invaded and occupied eastern Maine, 
This territory, as well as parts of Michigan and Wisconsin, were taken by the British and held with their Indian allies for the war, the entire war. In the Southwest, General Andrew Jackson destroyed the military strength of the Creek Nation at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And then, with the defeat of Napoleon in 1814, the British adopted a more aggressive strategy, setting in three large invasion armies. Now, is that Andrew Jackson future president? I believe so, yes. Huh. Didn't know he uh, served in the army. So the British had a victory at the Battle of Bladensburg in August, which allowed them to capture and burn Washington, D.C. So again, Washington, D.C. is burned. Yep, that, that, that was a little bit of a, an embarrassment on our part. Victories in September repulsed the British invasions of New York and Baltimore. And then the British suffered a major defeat in New Orleans in January of the next year. In the United States, late victories over British armies at the battles of Plattsburgh, Baltimore, and New Orleans produced a sense of euphoria over a second war of independence against Britain. Peace brought an era of good feelings to the U.S., in which partisan animosity nearly vanished. And the Baltimore battle is what inspired the Star-Spangled Banner. Well, I suppose there's nothing to bring people together like a common enemy. Yeah. At least for the Americans. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Because up to this point in time, it was Americans versus everyone else on the continent. Yeah. You were saying until uh, Napoleon was defeated the first time around, um, obviously the Redcoats were and the British Army were primarily concerned with the European theaters for that. So concerning Canada and the Midwest, uh, were they primarily using militia forces um, or were, were there garrison troops that they were using? It was both. Okay. Usually with militia forces, you also have regular forces sort of in charge. Okay. But primarily the fighting would be done by militias. Pretty much you, you send over a, a small garrison force. They help train up the locals to, you know, help defend the territories. And then when organizing, even lower ranked individuals would be put in charge of a squad of militia forces, most likely. Exactly. Okay. The fighting men would be locals. The commanders would be regular troops. Okay. And since they were fighting in another theater at the time over in France against Napoleon, they would have had to adapt a defensive strategy because they didn't have the forces. Yeah. To bring into the U.S., which changed once they defeated Napoleon. <laughs> In Canada, British and local Canadian militia victories over invading American armies became iconic and promoted the development of a distinct Canadian identity while maintaining loyalty to the British crown. Today, particularly in Loyalist-founded Ontario, memory of this war retains its significance. The defeat of the invasions ensured that the Canadians would remain part of the British Empire rather than be annexed by the United States. This war is also scarcely remembered in Britain today, as it regarded the conflict as a sideshow to the much larger Napoleonic War raging in Europe. Ah, uh, yes, the silly Yankees are throwing a temper tantrum. Pretty much. Oh, look, the kids are getting restless again. Didn't we do this a whole 20 years ago and change? Yeah, and if you remember correctly, you lost. <laughs> now, no, it wasn't a loss. We simply agreed that we got bored. And that's the story we're sticking with. So, Rich Jord notes, An unstated but powerful motivation for the Americans was the desire to uphold national honor in the face of what they considered to be British insults. Brand says, Quote, the other war hawks spoke of the struggle with Britain as a second war of independence. Jackson, who still bore scars from the first war of independence, held that view with special conviction. The approaching conflict was about violations of American rights. But was it also about vindication of American identity? Now, I'm sure we'll get into it, but what insults to our national honor were occurring? 
aside from conscripting civilian sailors to be members of the Royal Navy. That was a big part of it. I was going to say, that that's a big one. Like, you know, capturing citizens who are not in the military and then telling them, congratulations, you've been enrolled in the Navy for another power. That, that That's kind of breaking a lot of rules. But were there any others? Think of it this way. Britain was being a really big bully. They were treating the Americans like they used to. It was like, well, you guys are still just us. Just wait. We're, I mean, we're coming back. We're going to take our stuff back. Play with my toys while you have them, but we're coming back. That's what it felt like. Okay, so from the American side, it felt like, uh, okay, they aren't taxing us anymore, but in every other regard, they're acting like we still answer to them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exactly like that. We might not be giving mom and dad the money anymore, but they still are trying to insert their dominance over us. Right. Like insisting we ask permission if we want to expand westward. Well, that's our territory. I don't see a flag planted in Illinois. That's because the uh, Native Americans didn't use flags. Well, I, I was just like, uh, they were allied with uh, <laughs> the UK. Yeah, yeah. I know, I was just busting your chops there a little bit. Oh, no, I, I appreciate it. I I need my chops busted sometimes. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta exercise those chops. Now, why give it if I can't take it? <laughs> so prior to the American Revolution, Canada was synonymous with and exclusively referred to as the French-inhabited province of Quebec. The British had conquered Canada from France in 1760 with the assistance of the American colonists during the French and Indian War. In 1774, the boundaries of Canada were vastly extended by the Quebec Act, which included the unsettled Great Lakes region down to the Ohio River, which angered the 13 colonies and contributed to the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War. During the revolution, leaders of the rebel colonies made repeated tries with the French Canadians to join them in a continent-wide revolt. But they were under a very strong British military government and did not want to take up arms. The American rebels invaded Canada in 1775 in an attempt to secure Quebec as the 14th colony, but the British kicked them out in 76. Canada was then used as a British base of operations to launch the Saratoga campaign in New York and after that to incite Indian attacks against the colonies. Now, during peace negotiations in 1782, the Americans requested that the British cede all of Canada, but, of course, they refused it. The Treaty of Paris split up the unsettled Great Lakes region that had been given to Canada in 74 between Britain and the United States. The British retained control over the northern part while the U.S. obtained the southern part. The British half of the Great Lakes region quickly became a refuge for American loyalists, which who fleed the revolution and other late loyalists attracted during the 1790s because of generous land grants. And I'm sure American uh, colonists who were loyal to the crown still faced heavy stigmatism after the revolution, probably viewed as traitors. More than likely, they would hide their identities and say, oh, we're just British all along. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm saying, like, that's that's why they were heading to Canada, because, uh, like, people who were on the revolutionary side of the conflict compared to those who were fine with uh, the United Kingdom being in charge. Because I, I know it wasn't a, a, like, revolution majority. Like, it was... You know, more like a 40-60 split, right? More than likely. I mean, you'd never have 100% saying, right. let's let's overthrow our government. <laughs> USA! USA! So, yeah, those people that disagreed would just go to the British colonies. Yeah. Above the French colonies, since Quebec was divided into two, which was the English-speaking Upper Canada 
and then the French Lower Canada. Huh. Okay. In 1807, Britain introduced a series of trade restrictions with a set of orders in council which impeded American trade with France because Britain was at war with them. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the U.S. contested these restrictions under international law as illegal. So you can see here, Britain is still going, you will listen to us. You may have whooped our butts earlier, but you will still listen to us. Mm-hmm. It, it would be like the modern equivalent of a country saying, hey, you can't do trade with, you know, Norway, because we don't like Norway. In America, you better listen to us. Well, we don't have any beef with you, and we don't have any beef with Norway. We're just going to keep on doing as is. You do what you want, but we're our own country, so we don't have to follow your rules. Yeah, it's the Britain is trying to impose economical sanctions on France without the backing of a United Nations, as we have now. Yeah, that, that seems like that's doomed for failure. Unless you have the military might to back it up, which... The UK certainly would back then. They're, they have a very large military. They know how to use it. But they're also fighting everywhere. <laughs> That's true. So it's more empty threats. Otherwise, you're going to get another shooting war. Hmm. So actually, Reginald Horseman explains this. Quote, a large section of influential British opinion, both in the government and in the country, thought that America presented a threat to British maritime supremacy. Is this because of how we uh, carried ourselves in the Barbary War? I mean, I suppose yes. if your top admiral is, you know, giving commendations to, you know, your rival and former colony, you know, less than three decades back, that probably would raise eyebrows. The Barbary states weren't the only other people watching this conflict. The entire world was watching this conflict. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was saying that because of America's performance in the Barbary War, was that what got that uh, British officer, you know, pointing fingers at the U.S. and saying, hey, you know, left unchecked, they could actually be a pretty serious threat. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. Yeah. Okay. Since everybody was watching what happened in the Barbary War... Oh, I thought you were saying Barbary was watching 1812, and I was confused. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they were watching it for the, for the next Barbary War. Okay. The Barbary states were, of course, watching it because they were right there. But everybody yeah. else was also watching it saying, okay, these guys are actually doing something here. These guys are somebody to be careful of. We need to try to stamp down their spirit now or... Mm -hmm. we're going to be in competition with them. Because this is still, you know, during the height of colonialism. So, you know, while plenty of European powers may not have a lot of uh, capability to settle Western North America, it would be feasible in an alternate timeline if you want to say that, that if this hadn't happened, America could have participated in the huge land grab of Africa or, you know, thrown their weight around in Asia more than they did. Yeah. In a alternate history, if the U.S. had lost and became a huge British colony, then British dominance over the entire world would have been assured. Yeah. At least until somebody found a way to stop them. Yeah. So... The American Merchant Marine had come close to doubling between 1802 and 1810, making it by far the largest neutral fleet. Britain was the largest trading partner, receiving 80% of the cotton and 50% of other exports. Their public and press were resentful of the growing mercantile and commercial competition. In the U.S.'s view, Britain's restrictions violated its right to trade with others. So between these years, the U.S. does what the U.S. does best, has always done best, outproduce everybody else. And Britain thought, and Britain saw that as a threat. It's almost like uh, how a lot of people are critical about 
various nations' reliance on foreign oil. In this case, foreign oil being foreign cotton. I think more it would be how they see this upstart nation all of a sudden outproducing and projecting themselves all over the world in a way that they have never been able to do. Oh, okay. It threatened them economically. These people who were supposed to be theirs are doing so much better than them, putting up until this, okay, up until this point, the English, the English merchant fleet was the top dominant fleet in the world. They had trade routes everywhere, trading with everybody, grabbing stuff from their own colonies to sell in the free market. Now you have the U.S. coming in with a bigger fleet coming to take over. Okay. It was economic competition, and they preferred it having a monopoly on international trade, practically. Up until this point, they pretty much have a monopoly. Yeah. Like, other countries may have had merchant fleets, but they were, you know, probably a dozen ships or less, if that. And probably more than likely just local. Like, yeah. we'll go 100 miles up the coast of the next country over and trade. While the Britain's reach was worldwide. Yeah. And then, now you have the U.S. coming in saying, we're worldwide too. And we've only been here for 20 years. You've been here for hundreds. Now, how does that make you feel? Sad, Governor. Really sad. Right. So, as you can see, the tensions just on that front are huge. And okay. then you have Britain coming in and taking people off boats to go fight in their wars. But we'll get into that in a little, in a little bit. <laughs> All right, so during the Napoleonic Wars, the Royal Navy expanded to 175 ships of the line, which made it about 600 ships overall. So they needed a lot of people to man these, yeah. these ships. It's estimated that they needed about 140,000 sailors to man this fleet. And during peacetime, the Royal Navy could man all of its warships and auxiliary vessels with volunteers. But then it competed in wartime with merchant shipping and privateers for, you know, a very small pool of experienced sailors. So they turned to impressment when it could not operate all of its ships with volunteers. Mm -hmm. Britain did not recognize the right of a British subject to relinquish his status as a British subject. Immigration and transfer of national allegiance as a naturalized citizen to any other country, was a no-go. So while the U.S. recognized British-born sailors on American ships as Americans, Britain did not. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, like, I, I'm no lawyer, but that just broke my brain. Like, that, what legal gymnastics do you have to do to make that work? Again, Britain thought that everything revolved around them. What they say goes. So, like, even people, natural-born American citizens, born after the Paris Agreement, oh, no, no, you're, you're a British subject. You know, we, we just have a silly piece. You, you guys signed a silly piece of paper that makes you feel special, but you're a British subject still. Actually, no. They... If you were born in America, you're an American. A lot of immigration was still happening this time from the UK to America. Oh, okay. So they were press-ganging people who immigrated to America, but not natural-born citizens. Well, sometimes even natural-born citizens. Th that's true. You know, this being the 1800s, it's not like, oh, hold up, let me get my phone and see... Here, documents. My, here's my doc. Here's a copy of my birth certificate. Exactly. Yeah. So if they couldn't prove that they weren't British, naturally, whoop. Hey, we speak the same language. We sound the exact same. Guess what? You're working for me now. Yeah, that that's a very, very war-inducing mindset for the country that is having 
citizens literally kidnapped. As so, you can see how big of a deal this was. Yeah, I, I didn't realize it was uh, such a. It sounds like it was fairly rampantly widespread. Yeah, we're gonna get into how widespread it is a little bit. It's estimated that there were eleven thousand naturalized sailors, so British citizens becoming Americans, serving on merchant ships in 1805. Yeah. Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin said that 9,000 were born in Britain, and the Royal Navy went after them by intercepting and searching U.S. merchant ships for, as they called them, deserters. Again, the mindset of the Britain was, once you're a Brit, that's it. Yeah, once you're born under the, uh, it's the Union Jack at sea, it's something else on land. But once you're born under that flag, no matter where you go, you're still British. Yeah, once you're a Brit, that's it. So, impressment actions such as the Leander Affair and the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, of course, it it's outraged Americans. Because this infringed on national sovereignty and denied America's ability to naturalize foreigners. And a great number of British sailors serving as naturalized Americans on the U.S. ships were Irish. So they weren't even English. And they certainly weren't treated as English in Ireland. No. They were treated as second-rate citizens, or third-rate even. I, I, I was going to say like, third-rate, let's be honest. Heck, we can't even go fourth-rate with that. Yeah. An investigation by Captain Isaac Chauncey in 1808 found that 58% of sailors based in NYC were either naturalized citizens or recent immigrants, and the majority of foreign sailors being from Britain. So about 134 of 150. Which, breaking that down, ballpark, that's like 80% of your uh, manpower to crew your vessels then the British are claiming to have access to as soon as they run into them. Yeah. That's insane. And of that 134 out of 150, 80 of them were Irish. So now we're talking more 30%. Mm-hmm. The U.S. believed that British deserters had a right to become United States citizens, which they're not really deserting, they're immigrating. But in the British mindset, they were deserters. So because Britain didn't recognize U.S. citizenship for immigration, they recovered deserters and considered United States citizens born British liable for impressment. Now, not saying that this justifies it, but Silver Lining was serving aboard a British naval vessel at least considered part of your sentence? Or was it, you're serving and then you're off to prison? You're not off to prison unless you fight. Hmm. And some people did fight it and won. It just took a very long time. But mostly it was, you'll work for us and get paid voluntarily, or you'll work for us and not get paid. Or you fight it, go to prison for a while while we let the legal shenanigans work out in the courts. That's the three options. Yeah, I can't say I'm overly fond of any of those. No. So what made the situation worse was widespread identity papers that were forged or protection papers by sailors. This made it difficult for the Royal Navy to distinguish Americans from non-Americans, which also led to a lot of Americans being impressed who had never even been British. So naturally born Americans. So a lot of British-born sailors were forging paperwork saying they had never set foot on British soil. Britain, knowing that was a blatant lie, just said, fine, we don't care what the paper says. You know, if we think you look British, if we think you sound British, that's good enough for us. We don't give a damn what the paper says. Yeah, pretty much. Since there were so many forgeries out there, they were like, well, we don't know, so we're just taking everybody. And... Looking and sounding British, everybody looked and sounded British. Yeah. I mean, they were all British 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
So they were like, well, we're just going to take everybody. So the anger on the American side got even higher when British frigates were stationed just outside U.S. harbors in view of U.S. shores, stopping searching ships for contraband and impressing men in U.S. territorial waters. Oh, they, they didn't even have the courtesy to be in international waters? Nope. I, I told you this was coming. Oh, oh. Expletive uh, word I want to use, but I think we want to keep it PG-13 or less. Yeah. Oh, that's... Dang. I, I can't put a funny spin on that. That's just, oh, bad, bad call. Free trade and sailor rights was a rallying cry for the United States throughout this conflict. The Northwest Territory, compromising the modern states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, was the battleground for conflict between the Indian nations and the U.S. The British Empire had ceded the area to the U.S. in the Treaty of Paris in 1783, both of them ignoring the fact that the land was already inhabited by various Indian nations, which that's been happening ever since the British first came. Yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. tell them, listen, we just need a little slice. Okay, you mind moving a little bit over? Yeah, sure, and then you just keep on moving the fence. Mm-hmm. So these tribes were the Miami, Winnebago, Shawnee, Fox, Sioux, Kickapoo, Delaware, and Wynadot. Some warriors had left their nations of origin, followed Teskwatawa, the Shawnee prophet, and the brother of Tecumseh. Teskwatawa had a vision of purifying his society by expelling the, quote, children of the evil spirit, or the American settlers. They both formed a confederation of numerous tribes to block American expansion. The British saw these nations as allies and a buffer to its Canadian colonies and provided arms. So attacks on American settlers in the Northwest further aggravated tensions between Britain and the U.S., which, why wouldn't it? They're saying, yeah. hey, go fight these guys for us. And not keeping it a secret, because the British don't keep anything a secret, as we saw with the taking people right off the coast. Yes, hello, American citizens. Please send out your next boat full of tribute. What? I mean your next ship full of trade goods. Yeah, the British Mafia. So, of course, the Confederation's raids and existence hindered the American expansion into the rich farmlands of the Northwest Territory. Pratt writes... Quote, there is ample proof that the British authorities did all in their power to hold or win the allegiance of the Indians of the Northwest, with the expectation of using them as allies in the event of war. Indian allegiance could be held only by gifts, and to an Indian with no gift was as acceptable as a lethal weapon. Guns and ammunition, tomahawks and scalping knives were dealt out with some liberty by British agents. So the rating grew more common in 1810 to 11, and Westerners in Congress found the raids intolerable and, of course, wanted them permanently ended. Now, when you say Westerners, um, congressmen from Western states or congressmen that favored Western expansionism? Both. Okay. Because this is after the Louisiana Purchase, which then made uh, pretty much like every Kansas North and then... Where, Mex where the territorial lines with Mexico were going through several state lines now. But it literally opened up the Pacific for America. Not just yet. We hadn't gotten that far yet as Was conquered, I don't believe. No, what, what, what I, well, what I'm saying is um, it was purchased uh, from France in 1802, I think. Oh, Louisiana? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's as far west as we'd gotten then. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I don't know what your thought process is. Because I think the Louisiana Purchase opened up everything up to Oregon. Oh, nope, nope, I was mistaken. But then what America was saying was theirs, 
um, with you saying Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, that is a massive, you know, Indi- Native American territory that they are now actively raiding along the borders on encouragement from the British, smack dab in between established states and now territories that I'm sure the U.S. would love to have settlers head towards. Yeah, eventually they would want to head towards the coast, just grab everything. Yeah. One of the things the British left with the colonists is Mm -hmm. their aggressive tendency to expand. So, according to the U.S. Army Center of Military History, the land-hungry frontiermen, with no doubt that their troubles with the Indians were the result of British intrigue, made the problem worse. After every Indian raid of British Army, muskets and equipment being found on the field. Thus, the Westerners were convinced that the problems were best be solved by forcing the British out of Canada. So every time they defeated a tribe or... They found British arms. Yeah. So there was like... So the Britons are supplying the people that are fighting us. They're taking our people off of our mm-hmm. coast. They're trying to squash trade with one of the few allies we had out there. We hate them. And not that uh, relations between white settlers and Native Americans were ever stellar. But I can't help but wonder if uh, the war happening in what is now the Midwest, like with uh, the Native Americans being supplied by uh, British agents like is what sealed the deal so to speak for you know the century and a half and you know even to today uh bad relations that the federal government has with tribes oh no that's all the u.s's fault the lying the stealing the murders oh no 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 i'm 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 not saying yeah i'm not saying like this was the only bad thing that happened I'm, i'm just wondering like if this is what kind of got the ball rolling for them to use as an excuse. No, they didn't need an excuse. They wanted the land. They were going to take the land. This was what they needed to say, go to war again with the British. Okay. No, the atrocities done to the Native Americans was all because they wanted to expand. Good old-fashioned greed. Yeah, and rightly so, the Native Americans were like, no, this isn't cool. You keep do, you keep moving the fence, we keep trying to play nice, and you keep moving it, and eventually we get sick and tired of it. Yeah, and I don't blame them whatsoever. No, yeah. So the British had a long-standing goal of creating a large, neutral Indian state that would cover much of Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. They made the demand as late as the fall of 1814 at the peace conference but lost control of Western Ontario in 1813 at key battles on and around Lake Erie. These battles destroyed the Indian Confederacy, which had been the main ally of the British and cut off communication with the proposed neutral zone, which remained largely under British and Indian control. And since this happened, of course, the Americans were like, now you're going to drop these demands. Yeah, it, it was a bargaining chip the British had. We took it and... The British conceded the demand because they lost that bargaining chip. Yeah, we'll learn later that when they were making that demands, those battles were actually happening a few days before the peace treaty was finally done. And once they lost those battles, word reached the conference, and the Americans were like, well, guess what? Now we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I often hear about the War of 1812 is a lot of the the key events that happened happened months, if not weeks, before the peace was finally signed. Yeah, again, you know, communication during this time was very slow. There was also few battles that happened after the peace was formally signed. Mm -hmm. Because it just, just like we saw with the Barbary States. It takes time. It takes time to get the word out, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care how great your ship is, you can only cross the Atlantic so fast. Exactly. Which I think was an average of 8 knots. 8 to 12 knots, something like that. So not very fast. Alright. You're looking something up. 
Yeah, I'm looking up how many nautical miles to cross the Atlantic. Mm. I think it, well, modern times, it took us longer to actually go across it than to come back due to the fact that, you know, you're being monitored. So if they see a American carrier battle group heading across the Atlantic at, say, you know, flank speed. Yeah. Alarm bells go up. So we always had to go slower. So, you know, it took a few weeks. All right. So according to Google, it's about 2,880 miles. So you, you figuring around eight knots uh, an hour at good speed. Assuming there's absolutely no complications whatsoever and conditions are right that you can keep that speed... You can make it in 15 days if you're sailing 24-7 at 8 knots. So in all likelihood, probably 3 weeks on average. Because you never have perfect conditions all the time. No. Which is why we do an average of 8 knots. That will hopefully take in account being becalmed or less winds, the currents not cooperating, storms, depending on the type of year. Hurricane season, very bad for wooden sailing ships. Well, very bad for any type of sailing ship, period. You know, freak sea monster attacks. I mean, we've all seen the maps. Those things are hiding all over the place. Yeah, krakens were a big problem. Mm -hmm. So, American expansion into the Northwest Territory was being obstructed by Native American leaders like Tuscumseh, who were supplied and encouraged by the British. The Americans demanded that the interference be stopped. There's a dispute on whether or not the Americans' desire to annex Canada brought on the war. A majority of historians believe that the capture of Canada was intended only as a means to secure a bargaining chip, which would then be used to force Britain to back down on the maritime issues. They would also cut off food supplies for Britain's West Indian colonies and temporarily prevent the British from continuing to arm the Indians. But a significant minority of historians believe that a desire to annex Canada did bring on the war. They point out that the annexation would achieve a long-standing goal of driving the British out of North America permanently, while also solving the, quote, Indian problem, and gain a significant amount of valuable land. Yeah, I'm inclined to side with the majority on the minority on this one i would have to as well just because of the expansionist mindset of these people at this yep. day and age manifest destiny uh but the the views are often based on nationalistic ties as is the public opinion that's yeah so upper canada which is modern southern ontario had mostly been settled by Revolution-era exiles from the U.S. or, you know, loyalists to the United Kingdom or Britain, actually, at this time, as well as post-war American immigrants. The loyalists were hostile to Union with the U.S., while the immigrant settlers were actually uninterested in politics, and they, they were like, we want to be neutral, or they supported the British during this war. The Canadian colonies were very lightly defended and had very low population by the British Army. The Americans believed that many of the Upper Canada would rise up and greet the American Army as liberators, which did not happen. One reason that they retreated after a successful battle was that they could not obtain supplies from the locals. No supply chain. You can't hold an area if you can't get supplies. No, and uh, it amuses me how often people show up expecting, uh, you know, a parade and flowers and open arms and, we saved you from what? Yourselves or your oppressors. And you are your new oppressors. Pretty much, yeah. We're switching one overlord for another. Congratulations. 
So the Americans thought that the possibility of local support suggested an easy conquest. And President Thomas Jefferson believed, quote, the acquisition of Canada this year, as far as the neighborhood of Quebec, will be a mere matter of marching and will give us the experience for the attack on Halifax, the next and final expulsion of England from the American continent. Uh, cockiness, it never bites you in the butt. Oh, absolutely never. Putin. So, the British government was pretty much oblivious to the deteriorating North American situation. Because, as stated earlier, the involvement in a continent-wide European war. The U.S. was in a period of significant political conflict between the Federalist Party, which favored a strong central government, and closer ties to Britain, and the Democratic Republican Party, which favored a weak central government, preservation of slavery, expansion into Indian land, and a stronger break with Britain. Okay, well, neither party makes sense to me. <laughs> a lot of the values of the Federalist Party, which would nowadays be the Republicans and the Democratic Republican Party, which is the Democrats, were flip-flopped. Right, right. Yeah, like uh, a lot of Republicans say, well, we're the party of Lincoln. It's like, yes, and back then... You know, the Republicans were the crazy liberals of the era. Yeah. You know, it, the name stays the same, but the goals shift. I, I, right. I'm just saying, so like one party was totally cool with deepening ties with Britain, despite what was currently going on. And the other is not on the right side of history in the slightest. Yeah. There's always people yeah. on either side, no matter what time period, no matter the conflict. That, so politicians will forever never make sense. Yeah. Uh, all right, we're doomed. Cool. Yeah, don't even try to figure it out. It's not... Okay. You'll, you'll burn out your brain. Uh, yeah, it, it's running low. It's running low, current <laughs> events being what they are. I need what little I have left. Yeah. So by 1812, the Federalist Party had weakened considerably, and the Democratic-Republicans, with James Madison completing his first term of office and control of Congress, they were in a very strong position to pursue a more aggressive agenda against Britain and to try to further weaken its Federalist rivals. Throughout this war, support for the U.S. cause would be weak and a lot of times non-existent in Federalist areas. The self-destruction of the Federalists at Hartford Convention led to a broader retroactive support from all parts of the country. Yeah, I'm not overly familiar, familiar with the uh, timeline of various political parties coming and going in power here in the United States, but the Federalists were not that influential after the 1820s, right? So this was kind of the beginning of the end for them? Well... The two parties have pretty much been the same. They've just been called different things. It, it rebrands itself. Right. So each party gets weaker and stronger over time at different points in time. Just, again, brain-burning, coma-inducing. <laughs> so on June 1st, 1812, President James Madison sent a message to Congress telling of the American grievances against Great Britain. Although he did not call for a declaration of war, he just wanted to let them know what was happening. So after Madison's message is received and read, the House of Representatives thought about it for about four days behind closed doors. They didn't want anything from the public. And then they held a vote. 79 to 49 which is about 61%, in favor of declaring war. So, this is the first time the United States is officially declaring war since being recognized as an independent nation. Yes. At least right now, 
through the House. Still got to get through the Senate. That's fair. So I'll ask my next question then once we get through that. Go ahead. Okay. What is the, uh, like, what's the vote that's required for an official declaration of war? Majority. Okay, so a simple 51% in the House, 51% in the Senate, and then it goes to the president to be signed, or does it not need executive approval? The president has the right to sign or veto congressional acts, such as a declaration of war. But Congress may override any such presidential veto. With a three-fifths majority. I believe so, yes. You want to know what the Senate did? Uh, 100% approval? 19 to 13, actually. 59% in favor. Oh, okay. Which means the conflict formally began on June 18th, 1812, when Madison signed the measure into law and proclaimed it the next day. This was the first time that the United States had declared war on another nation, just as you said earlier. And the congressional vote would prove to be the closest vote to formally declare war in American history. So with that, we're going to go ahead and leave it here. Thank you guys for joining us. Steven, any thoughts or last words before we pull back at a port? Oh, um, always keep your papers handy. Please don't forge them because I don't want to be press ganged. And uh, take care. We will see you next week. Steven, go pump the bilges. <sighs> yes, Captain. Thank you again, guys, for joining us. Uh, if you want to contact us, please, you can do so at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, rate and review and tell your friends about the podcast. We can only grow with your help. And I wish you fair winds and following seas. US Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm-hmm.